Well, everyone knows or should know that the primary end of marriage is the education or procreation education of children. And even to this day, I uh, remember one of the first educational experiences in my life very clearly. My mom had her hand clamped over my mouth as she carried me out to church, and then she proceeded to educate me on making noise in church. I got some real education that day, and I've never forgotten that lesson. Uh, so a little fussing is one thing. Uh, that's understood because they're babies. But it's a question of charity. If it gets serious or goes on, they should be taken out. And you're not actually missing Mass if you do that because you're, you're taking care of a serious responsibility. So... In the sermon, as usual, I've edited, cut, and pasted the quotes. I won't bother citing everyone since it'd be tedious in a sermon. Ave Maria Prisima, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. One of the overseas regions of France is the French West Indies. They're located in the Eastern Caribbean. One of the principal islands there is the island of Martinique. At the beginning of the last century, the largest city on Martinique, in fact, the most important city on Martinique, culturally and economically speaking, was Saint-Pierre. It's a beautiful town which was known as the Paris of the Caribbean. Saint-Pierre was built right on the Caribbean with Mont Pelee stretching up behind it, uh, but there were problems in Martinique. Uh, although the people were baptized Catholics, nonetheless, a great many of the people practiced voodoo. Starting around 1890, the island was scourged with calamities. First, they had smallpox. Then a hurricane struck, killed hundreds of people, impoverished thousands more. Then the capital of Martinique, Fort de France, uh, burnt down. A priest preached from one end of the island to the other, exhorting the people to prayer and penance and warning them of God's awful retribution on sin and blasphemy. Father Mary, the parish priest, Mon Rouge, stated that, quote, the effect was only partial. A few, a limited number, gave practical proofs that the good priest's words had not fallen upon barren soil, but the majority continued to revel in their real irreligious and profane habits. Close quote. A limited number reformed, but the majority continued with their irreligious and irreligious and profane habits. A newspaper editor from a neighboring island had visited Saint-Pierre in March or April of 1902. After his visit, he stated, quote, in the midst of religion, the people were extremely irreligious. Some did not believe in the existence of God. Many ridiculed his might and power and scoffed at the mention of his name. In a word, the great mass of the people lived in open rebellion against their creator, living under conditions similar to the Sodomites of old, reveling in blasphemy and sacrilege, provoking the divine hand to wrath. Close quote. So you have the great mass living in open rebellion against God, in conditions similar to Sodom and Gomorrah, reveling in blasphemy and sacrilege, all of which provoked the wrath of God. So you know what's going to happen. Another author notes, quote, On Good Friday, this is Good Friday, 1902, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the cathedral was crowded with men, women, and children who had come together to hear a sermon on the passion of our Lord, to venerate the crucifix, and to make the stations of the cross. 
if the historical reports are to be believed. And yesterday, I called a priest friend of mine who's from Guadeloupe, which is another one of the islands in the French West Indies, who told me, although he wasn't familiar with this particular story, still it was completely believable. If the historical reports are to be believed, at about the same time that the faithful were making the stations of the cross in the cathedral, a crowd led by a French freethinker formed a sacrilegious procession, mocking the way of the cross. With a rope around its neck, they dragged a living pig outside the city. There they nailed it to a cross and lifted it on high. With shouts and curses, they hailed it as our Lord. They crowned its wretched head with thorns, pierced its side, and put a board above it with the inscription, J.C., King of the Christians. And yelling and dancing like fiends, carried it through the streets. At about the same hour, another procession of human devils ascended Mount Pele, uprooted a great crucifix that had stood there for many years, and admitted obscene rites and blasphemous songs through the crucifix into the crater of the volcano, their leader yelling as it sank out of sight, Go where thou deservest to go, into thine own hell. The author says, I record this as I heard it from the lips of those in Fort de France who had it from eyewitnesses, and I may add that it is corroborated by Colonel Pellhouse, who witnessed the frightful scene. Close quote. On April 6, Paley began to emit smoke and continued to get more and more active as the month wore on. Quote, Living near the volcano became increasingly stressful, leading many to consider leaving Saint-Pierre for Martinique's second city, Fort de France. The governor convinced the editor of the daily newspaper to downplay the danger of the volcano and to lead the effort to encourage people to remain. On May 7, 1902, it published a statement which read, Mount Paley presents no more danger to the inhabitants of Saint-Pierre than does Vesuvius to those of Naples. The newspaper added, We confess we cannot understand this panic. Where could one be better off than in Saint-Pierre? Still some residents left the city for Fort de France. This prompted the governor to send in troops to patrol the road with orders to turn back refugees who were trying to leave. Based on the soothing articles that appeared in the local paper, many people in the countryside flocked to San Pierre thinking it was the safest place to be. The population ballooned to about 28,000. Eventually, the governor appointed a volcano commission. The first meeting was scheduled in Saint-Pierre on the evening of May 7th, and their conclusions were published early on the morning of May 8th. Quote, The commission, responsible for the study of Mount Pele's volcanic phenomena, met yesterday evening, May 7th, under the chair of the governor. After a careful analysis of the, of the facts, the commission declares that, one, all the phenomena which have occurred so far are normal and are commonly observed on all volcanoes around the world. Two, since the craters of the volcano are wide open, the expansion of the vapors will continue with no earthquake or rock projection. Three, according to the location of the craters and the position of the valleys leading to the sea, the city of Saint-Pierre is perfectly safe. Close quote. And this report was published early on the morning of May 8, 1902. On that same day, it was Ascension Thursday, a ship had the city in direct view, when at about 8 a.m., the upper mountainside ripped open, and a dense black cloud shot out horizontally. A second black cloud rolled upwards, forming a gigantic mushroom cloud which darkened the sky for a 55-mile radius. 
The horizontal cloud was something known as Nue Ardan. Now, that's not being pretentious. It actually has a French name. Sometimes you'll see it called a pyroclastic cloud, but the proper name is Nue Ardan, which I'm probably mispronouncing. It's the most deadly of all volcanic phenomena. A Nue Ardan, a pyroclastic cloud, moves at absolutely phenomenal speeds as it comes rolling down a mountain. It's actually an avalanche. It's a fluidized cloud that contains super hot volcanic blocks, uh, gravel, uh, sand, etc., and ashes and superheated toxic gases. So it's glowing, red hot, ferocious heat on the inside, and it's wrapped in this brown cloud, a black cloud. In a minute, under a minute, it reached the city and completely covered it and the surrounding area, instantly igniting everything it came in contact with. This particular cloud was over 1,000 degrees centigrade. That's over 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. The city burnt for several days. Out of a city of almost 30,000 people, two survived. Two. Both suffered severe burns. Two survivors. 30,000 people two survivors. An excerpt from a report made five months later, quote, I visited St. Pierre on October 18th. Fortunately, we were able to go overland, for the authorities, a few weeks before, had a hundred laborers and several meal teams clearing the road. Banks of ashes, cinder, volcanic bombs, and sand lined the highway and were piled up many feet high, as when the railroad tracks are cleared after a heavy snowstorm. At 2 p.m., we stood over the site of the lost city. There were no ruins. Nothing but a few feet of one of the cathedral towers and that of the school were visible. Everything, houses, fine residents, public buildings, convents and schools, and 33,000 human bodies lay buried for all time under 65 feet of volcanic dust. There's absolutely nothing left if we accept the few feet of the cathedral tower to show there ever was a city where Saint Pierre is buried forevermore. If the ruin of Saint Pierre was a punish punishment for sacrilege and unheard of blasphemy, the world must acknowledge it was complete, even to the burying of the dead. Close quote. Another quote. In a word, the great mass of the people lived in open rebellion against their creator living under the conditions similar to the sodomites of old, reveling in blasphemy and sacrilege, provoking the divine hand to wrath. Which of us who worships God doubts the cause of the destruction of Saint-Pierre? That's what divine justice looks like. Nothing left. Warning after warning. Plagues, hurricanes, priests preaching up and down the island, rumbling of the volcano for months ahead of time, and then justice. St. Alphonsus says, Do you imagine that God will always wait, always pardon, and never punish? No. God is merciful for a season, and then he punishes. So, 
after an absolutely terrifying event like that in the relatively recent past, how have the people of Martinique, which even today is 90% Catholic, how have they responded? What have they learned? I quote, The saints may go marching at other carnival locales, but on the island of Martinique in the French West Indies, the boisterous pre-land event revolves around the devil. Festivities kick off with a traditional cardinal, carnival parade on Fat Sunday, but the carnival really heats up on Mardi Gras, the day of the devil, when everyone wears red and dresses in demonic costumes. The climax comes on Ash Wednesday. The climax comes on Ash Wednesday, which is the day of the she-devils, when 30,000 revelers gather to mourn the end of carnival and the symbolic death of King Carnival, which has the theme, Rejoice Today, Repent Tomorrow. On the evening of Ash Wednesday, there's a salacious dance of the devils and a bonfire to burn a giant papier-mâché effigy of King Carnival that symbolizes the end of the festival and the start of Lent. Close quotes. So what have they learned? Collectively speaking, are they not still living in open rebellion against the Creator? Living under conditions similar to the Sodomites of old, reveling in blasphemy and sacrilege, provoking the divine hand to wrath. Does anyone doubt that the Lord has noticed this? They're not alone. Dr. Richard Fitzgibbons, a psychiatrist with experience treating sexually abused priests, has served as a consultant to the Congregation for the Clergy at the Holy See. I quote from an article from yesterday. Dr. Fitzgibbons, I've worked extensively with Catholic youth, severely harmed psychologically by the divorce of their parents, frequently enabled by the easy annulments of their parents' sacramental marriages in disregard for justice, mercy, and psychological science and by youth severely harmed psychologically by the epidemics of narcissism, marijuana, pornography, and hooking up culture, using others as objects, and the enormous peer pressure to be sexually active and suffering the psychological conflicts in their parents, siblings, and peers. That's quite a list of problems that he's a professional to work with. He continues, However, in my professional opinion, the most dangerous threat to Catholic youth that I have seen over the past 40 years. The most dangerous threat to Catholic youth I've seen over the past 40 years. The most dangerous threat to Catholic youth I've seen over the past 40 years is the Vatican's new sexual education program. In my professional opinion, the most dangerous threat to Catholic youth I have seen over the past 40 years is the Vatican's new sexual education program, which was released World Youth Day in Poland by the Pontifical Council of the Family under the direction of Archbishop Paglia. He continues, I was particularly shocked by the images contained in this program, some of which are clearly pornographic. My immediate professional reaction was that this Pornographic approach abuses youth psychologically and spiritually. As a professional who has treated both priest perpetrators and the victims of the abuse crisis in the church, what I found particularly troubling was that the pornographic images in this program are similar 
to those used by adult predators of adolescents. This program constitutes sexual abuse of Catholic adolescents worldwide. It represents a grave future crisis in the church in far greater proportions than the scandalous sexual abuse crisis of youth so widely reported in the press. Close quote. Now yesterday I talked to a very balanced friend whom I trust completely who said she had reviewed the photographs and there's no question they're porn. I'm certainly not going to do that. We have now reached the point where we need a filter to block the Vatican website. We need a filter to block the Vatican website. So where are the church leaders with all this? Collectively speaking, are the bishops who produce this filth and permit this filth not obviously living in open rebellion against their creator, living and promoting conditions similar to the sodomites of old, reviling blasphemy and sacrilege, provoking the divine hand to wrath. Does anyone doubt that the Lord has noted this? What was that that he said about scandal again? Something about millstones, I think. An article published almost three and a half years ago, Dr. Brian Klaus, he's the Director of Education and Research at Human Life International, estimates at this time there had been more than 1.72 billion abortions in the past 40 years. He notes that this trend is actually growing exponentially as more and more countries embrace and legalize contraception and abortion as methods of population control, of course under the guise of family planning and reproductive health. Collectively speaking, are not the family of nations living in open rebellion against their creator? with conditions similar to the sodomites of old, reveling in blasphemy and sacrilege, provoking divine hand to wrath. Does anyone doubt that the Lord has noted this? Is this not one of the sins that cry out to heaven for vengeance? What about the rainbow movement? As Scott Lively noted, quote, 50 years ago, San Francisco behavior was illegal throughout the entire world, except for Sweden, which had decriminalized it in 1938. Yet in the space of just half a century, this tiny 1 to 3% of the population have made themselves a global political power with greater influence in the courtrooms and legislatures of the world than the Church of Jesus Christ, close quote. Collectively speaking, are they not obviously living in open rebellion against their creator, attempting to create social conditions precisely the same as Sodom, reveling in blasphemy and sacrilege, provoking the divine hand to wrath? Does anyone doubt that the Lord has noted this? Is this not also one of the sins that cries out to heaven for vengeance. And somebody please remind me, which political party in our fair country is actually opposed to this kind of behavior 
I'd like to know. I haven't found one yet. Because of time, we won't bother with the other two sins which cry out to heaven for vengeance. But these two are a global phenomena, and the Lord has surely noted them as well. Just a few more thoughts. A few months ago, European leaders, including the German Chancellor Angela Merkel, French President Francois Hollande, Italian Prime Minister Matteo Renzi, Liechtenstein Prime Minister Adrian Hassler, and Austrian Chancellor Christian Kern took part in the opening of the world's largest tunnel. It runs 57 kilometers under the Swiss Alps. The open, opening ceremonies, which take hours, contain blatantly satanic overtones, including a satanic figure with a goat head being adored by scantily clad figures repeatedly prostrating themselves before him, all to the accompaniment of horrific wailing and screaming. And at the end, the most powerful people in Europe gave a standing ovation. What are the elite telling us by such a ceremony? In effect, this is who we serve. This is who we believe in. This is what we think of you. And there isn't a thing you can do about it. Collectively speaking, are they not living in open rebellion against their creator? Living under conditions similar to the Sodomites of old. Reveling in blasphemy and sacrilege and provoking the divine hand to wrath. Does anyone doubt that the Lord has noted this? But why pick on the elites? It isn't just the elites that engage this kind of behavior, is it? Isn't, aren't these the same things that we see in so much of our music and entertainment industries here? Aren't neo-pagans virtually everywhere? So collectively speaking, are not we living in open rebellion against our Creator? living under conditions similar to the Sodomites of old, reveling in blasphemy and sacrilege, provoking the divine hand to wrath. Does anyone doubt that the Lord has noted this? And in terms of blasphemous use of pigs, what just happened up in Oklahoma two weeks ago, on August 15th, the Feast of the Assumption of Our Lady? A satanic group was allowed by the local government to use a taxpayer-funded venue, the Oklahoma City Civic Center Music Hall. And what happened there? A registered sex offender led a satanic black mass, which is another way of saying that the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass and our Lord and the most blessed sacrament of the altar were mocked and blasphemed. And during this abomination of desolation, this registered sex offender deliberately mocked Our Lady by decapitating a statue of the Blessed Mother. And after smashing that statue to pieces, a pig's heart that had been shoved up inside was then consumed. And all this was done under the protection of the civil authorities. That's religious freedom, by the way. That's what religious freedom looks like. That's what it means in these United States. Think about that. Think about that. This is a lot worse than the incident in Martinique. It's a lot worse. The satanic attack on Our Lady had official recognition, was given a public venue, and protected 
by public authority. Collectively speaking, are we not all living in open rebellion against our Creator, living under conditions similar to the Sodomites of old, reveling in blasphemy and sacrilege, provoking the divine hand to wrath? Does anyone doubt that our Lord noted that? Does anyone doubt that he will avenge the honor of his mother? Because if you doubt that, you better think again. St. Alphonse has asked, do you imagine that God will always wait, always pardon, and never punish? No. God is merciful for a season, and then he punishes. That great doctor of the church, St. Thomas Aquinas, explains, quote, we are to look to God for vengeance on his enemies. Vengeance consists in the infliction of a punishment on one who has sinned. When the whole multitude sins, vengeance must be taken on them, either in respect of the whole multitude, thus the Egyptians were drowned in the Red Sea while they were pursuing the children of Israel, and the people of Sodom were entirely destroyed, or as regards part of the multitude, as may be seen in the punishment of those who worship the calf. Close quote. When the whole multitude sins, vengeance must be taken on them, either in regards to the whole multitude, as the cage, in the case of the Egyptians in the Red Sea, or the Sodomites, or else as regards part of the multitude, as in the case of those worshiping the golden calf. A few closing thoughts. It truly has been a year of mercy, where God has reached out to everyone with unbelievable mercy, but very few have accepted it. God's mercy does not contradict his justice. They actually complement each other. God sees if a person's heart is good and if he really wants to do right, but may be struggling because he lacks proper guidance due to the condition of the world and the kind of leaders he has. God sees the truth in each man's heart, and he grants him mercy, forgiving him, or judging him accordingly. God acts with true justice because he can see the per situation perfectly, everything involved, down to the tiniest detail. He literally knows every hair on our heads. And he judges justly, measures out to each one of us with perfect exactitude the just reward or punishment for every thought, word, deed, or omission so that no one can ever claim any injustice. Each thought, word, deed, or omission, in each detail, no matter how small, will be judged in perfect truth and charity. And it's safe to say that anyone who knows their catechism has not been blinded by sin. That anyone who can see through lenses of truth and charity can see, as the scriptures say, that the whole world is seated in wickedness. Anyone can see that the whole world has sinned in regard to the four sins that cry out to heaven for vengeance. Anyone can see that even the Holy See itself is seriously sinning with regards to the terrible crime of scandal of the little ones. And as St. Thomas teaches, when the whole multitude sins, vengeance must be taken on them, either with regard to the whole multitude or as regards part of the multitude. 
Given all that, anyone can see it's only just, a justice rooted in true charity for God to bring down a just judgment upon the world as a whole. Since it really is the whole world involved in these situations. At least as regards a part of the multitude. Since it really is the whole world that has rejected Christ and his church. At least as regards part of the multitude. And the whole world, at least as regards part of the multitude, deserves to have the punishment they've been asking for by their behavior, by their sins, by their blasphemies, by their sacrileges. If we actually consider the state of the world, will we not desire justice? Will we not long for justice? And if we truly desire justice, would we not want to cry out with each one of those who are suffering from these sins? For example, if we do unite begging God to have vengeance for the blood of the almost two billion babies aborted, will we not want that country, that locality, that person, that doctor to stop slaughtering those poor babies in the womb, those poor babies that can never see the beatific vision? Will we not want the justice be done? Since we know that God is perfectly just, perfectly merciful, that he knows all truth and his charity himself, so we should be at peace in knowing that although it is very apparent that justice is soon to visit this world, this world seated in sin, as long as we stay close to Our Lady, we'll be able to embrace the cross coming. As long as we stay close to Our Lady, we'll be able to be sanctified by the cross that is coming. We can be at peace knowing that God is merciful and loving. He will not abandon us in the vengeance that is sure to come. But we're going to have to carry a cross because justice is due. It's due. In the book of the prophet Isaiah, in chapter 28 and verse 22, the prophet tells us, For I have heard of the Lord of the God of hosts. Annihilation and a cutting short upon the whole earth. For I have heard of the Lord God of hosts an annihilation and a cutting short upon the whole earth. Now I'm not the prophet Isaiah, but I can say the chastisement is near at hand. We all know that. Everyone knows that. The year of mercy is drawing to an end. Justice is coming. And it's time for justice. Justice is coming. It's time for justice. <laughs>